scripture reading for this morning is from Philippians, 1 Peter and Titus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interest, but also in the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 to 25 For, this, for through this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. When, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Again, my name is Gray, uh, pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service, uh, but you're most welcome here. I wanted to make one more announcement before we dive into today's sermon, and that is uh, this little insert that you have in your bulletin. Uh, this says our midweek gathering, sign up, and I wanted to just mention that because it's a good opportunity for us to describe what the flow of community life is here. We have our uh, our um, community groups, which have been meeting for the last uh, 12 weeks or so, and those have just wrapped up, and there's a little bit of a space, and our next thing is to do a midweek gathering. That is a gathering here at the church for five weeks, and it's more of a class format, and we kind of bounce between those two things. We have a season of having uh, community groups and homes, and then we have classes here that everybody can attend, and so we have one starting April 19th. That's on Wednesday nights uh, at 6 p.m., 
and it's going to be called Pathways to Prayer. Five weeks on prayer, myself and three other elders are going to be teaching this class, Uh, and so uh, we're really excited about the content of it coming up as well. Um, We have heard some feedback from you that the 6 p.m. start time without dinner is hard for families, so we are actually trying, experimenting something for this Wednesday nights uh, where we're going to provide a light dinner at 6 p.m. So uh, basically, if you show up, there's going to be uh, I think maybe pizza the first week and then like a, like a sandwich bar. It's like sandwich and chips and that kind of thing. Very light dinner, uh, but we're going to serve that every week. And there is child care every week as well. There's some suggested donations for the entire time if you want dinner. Uh, otherwise, if that's a hardship, don't worry about that. But um, we want to just kind of remove barriers uh, to coming on Wednesday nights, and we'd love to have you sign up for that. So sign up for that using this card. You can hover your phone over that QR code. You can also use that card in front of you that says next steps. A great next step would be to sign up for this class. If you are looking for a way to be more involved here, or if you're looking for ways of, of how to pray, all of us struggle to pray. And so that's really going to be the subject of it. So if that sounds of interest to you, Uh, Please do sign up today and let us know so we can begin preparing food and childcare, etc. We are finishing a series on the cross this morning. We've been looking for the last few weeks at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're finishing today with a discussion on what the cross-shaped life looks like. What does it look like to live into the cross, the cross not just being an event, not less than an event, but more than an event, something that we're actually told to model our lives after. Before we go there, let's go to the Lord and ask for His help in prayer. Father, we are grateful for Your Word this morning, which teaches us so beautifully, so clearly what it means to live a good life which is to die to self and to live to righteousness, which is modeled for us perfectly in the obedience of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we pray that as we talk this morning, you would shape us, you would change us into the image of your Son, so we would be like him and with him in his death, and in his resurrection coming this next Sunday. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. 1994 was a big year. I don't know if you know that or not, but the IBM Simon Personal Communicator was released on the market. Now, I know everybody remembers that Simon Personal Communicator, don't we? We probably don't, even if we were alive and well in 1994, but that was the very first smartphone, so to speak. It had a screen that you could touch. It could send emails and even faxes, right? That was a significant day in 1994 when the smartphone was first released. Another significant day was in 2001 when a phone was released that could actually connect to the then 3G network. That was a significant day. 2007, very significant day in 2007 when the very first iPhone was released, which had 
full access to the internet, never seen before, in a phone. I'm not going to dignify Android with any uh, dates of history. Sorry. Just a little, because I can. You could go to any of these dates, any of these years, any of the release parties, and you could say, on that day, the world changed. And it was like an introduction to a new reality. But it, it isn't just that the world changed on that day. What happened is, we grew, we grew to live into a new reality, a reality of having smartphones. We have all been affected. The average is three to four hours a day for each of us to use our smartphones. It affects the way that we work, the expectations we have for speed in our work for communication. It changes how we calculate numbers. It's changed how we store and take pictures. It changes how much information we have access to. It even changes the human body. I just read an article this week that, that many young people are developing this kind of vertebrae condition that often shows up in old age because of the smartphone hunch. Right? When we look over at our phones, it's even shaping our bodies. I was thinking about this. When is the last time, this is the reason why I'm using this as an example, when, when is the last time that something affected what we do three to four hours a day, almost universally for, in the human experience? When was the last time something had such a great effect that it changed our communication and even our bodies? The last thing I could think of was the Industrial Revolution, which changed the way that work happens, right? And that, that affected the number of hours in the day. But this was a huge change. But my point is to say that it wasn't just the event itself. It wasn't when these, these items were released onto the market that was significant. That was significant because it marked the change. But it was actually in the changes itself. It was actually in how we changed with the event where the changes really mattered. We live smartphone-shaped lives because of what has been released into the world. Now we are shaped by it. The cross was an event. We've labored to say that. This event that happened was very significant in, on the day that it happened for a number of different reasons. The Bible tells us that the cross satisfied God's wrath. It cleared our debt. We talked about it defeated the enemies of God. It was the crushing of the serpent's head when Jesus died. Last week we saw the cross was the greatest demonstration of love. It is an event it's no less than an important event. So don't let anybody tell you that the cross is an idea only. That the, the idea of the cross is what really matters. No, the event of the cross really matters. It is not less than an important event, but it is more. It is more. It is an introduction to a new way of life. It doesn't just teach us what happened, it teaches us what to do next, how to live. 
And we're called to live a cross-shaped life. Sometimes the word that's used is cruciform, to be in the shape, in the form of the cross. We're told in Scripture to follow Jesus to the cross, to take up our cross and follow Him. That is a strange idea just to think about for a moment, to take on Jesus' cross or to live a cross-shaped life. How do we know if we're doing that? That's what we're going to talk about today. How do I know if my life is being shaped by the cross? We know our lives are being shaped by the iPhone or, or whatever other one you use, right? That's, that's our, our smartphone-shaped life is true, but how do I know if my life is being shaped by the cross the way the Scriptures say that it is, should be? And I want to look at three things, three measures of the cruciform life. Now, when I say measures, I'm not talking about measuring salvation. I'm going to be very clear about this. When we talk about the cross and living a cross-shaped life, we're not talking about earning our salvation before God. That's not what's true. The event matters. The event was where our salvation was secured. If you were trusting in Christ, it's because Christ died on your behalf, not because you can live a cross-shaped life. However, We're also called to follow Christ in the Scriptures. And so these are things not to condemn us, uh, but but for us to watch and for us to note and for us to live into and to find joy and union with Christ. So the three things, first one is this. What we should expect to see in a cruciform life or cross-shaped life is an increasing obedience. An increasing obedience obedience. Now, in each of these, Christ is going to demonstrate, and then He's going to teach us how to live. Christ demonstrates obedience. Look at verse 8 of Philippians 2, that first passage there. And being found in human form, He, that is Christ, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ was the ultimate obedient one. He obeyed the Father willingly. He was faithful when Israel was not. He was the only true Israelite. He did what Israel could not, joyfully submit to the Father and live under the law. And and Philippians tells us the extent of that obedience was that he was willing to obey the Father in going to the cross. That's the event. That's what Jesus did for you. He was obedient to the Father, to the cross. However, the Scriptures teach us that when Jesus did that, He was also showing us how to live. Jump down to 1 Peter, the second passage there, in verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. He died. That was the event. He was obedient, but He taught us so that we would be obedient as well. Die to sin and live to righteousness. That is the pattern of an an obedient life. 
Look with me at Titus, the third passage there in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see how he takes the same kind of idea as Peter? Peter says, die to sin, live to righteousness. Titus says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, live toward a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. This is the pattern of obedience. What do I need to stop? Renounce? Die to? What do I need to start? Live? Practice towards? This is what obedience means, and we're told that Jesus modeled that for us so that we would, so that we could be trained to be obedient. Obedience is not a straight incline. When I say that we have an increasing obedience, that does not mean that our lives look like a graph that goes up and to the right. There are pits and falls. There are times where we walk or are tempted to walk away. What I'm talking about is when we zoom out and look at our lives, it actually should look like an increasing obedience. It should look something like the median you know, home price in America over the last hundred years, right? If you've seen those graphs before, the median home price in 1900 to 2000, it starts way down here, it ends way up here. If you zoom in on the graph, you see falls, you see recessions, you see things that have caused the price to go down, but then if you look at the whole thing, it's heading upward. This is what the Christian life is like. So we're not here to condemn and say if you fall into some disobedience and something that happened early in your life, that that should make you feel insecure about your salvation or anything like that. We're talking about obedience over the long haul. What is the relationship, I've already hinted at this, between the gospel, the good news, and obedience? Because there seems to be at first a tension between these two things, which is why I keep saying there is the event and there is the life. And the event is what saves us. But obedience is still necessary. Obedience is necessary to follow Christ. The best way to understand this relationship and pretty much any kind of tension that you might feel in the Christian life is to think about the family. Think about the picture of the family where God's, uh, God's picture of himself is so beautifully seen. My sons, and four of them, they must obey me. They must. But their obedience is not the basis of our relationship. What is the basis of our relationship? Love, grace. They were born into our family. They are a product of our love. They came into the world without passively. They, they had nothing to do with it. They came into the world loved. They continue to be loved regardless of what they do. That's the basis of our 
relationship. You begin to see why Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus in John's gospel, uses birth as the image for our relationship with God. He says, you must be born again. What he means by that to Nicodemus is, you need to see that this is passive to you. You have to be born into this world. You have to be born into a life with God. God is the one who sets the standard of the relationship. He loved you even before you were born. He loved you regardless of good or bad. He set his love on you. My son's basis for being in the family is love and grace, but obedience is still required. Obedience is still required. And obedience is not the basis of our relationship with God, but obedience is still required. Think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28, the marching orders of the church. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You're to do this by doing baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you teaching obedience. This is what discipleship is. I heard this definition one time. It's a beautiful, simple definition of discipleship, taking the next step of obedience. Because that's what we're called to do, be baptized into his name. When we're baptized, we're baptized into the event of his death. So we are covered by the grace of God, and now we're told to make steps towards following him by living an obedient life. He died for you, but also so that he could teach you obedience. And so we have to ask the hard question as you look at your life. You can ask yourself two questions, the obedience questions we asked earlier. What do I need to stop, renounce, die to, And on the other hand, what do I need to live to? Practice self-control, upright, godly life. What does that mean for me? You can take that question in prayer. You can take that question with an open journal page. And I would encourage you just to answer it one at a time. Don't overwhelm yourself with 50 things that you need to stop and 50 things you need to start. Take the next step of obedience because a life in Christ is a life of obedience as Jesus taught us, training us to renounce ungodliness and to walk upright, self-controlled, and godly lives. So first, an increasing obedience. That's something to watch, something to note in your life. A second thing to watch is this, a mindset of sacrifice. If you want your life to take the shape of the cross, you need not just an increasing obedience, you need a mindset of sacrifice. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 3. Sorry, verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition, that's that self-seeking, or conceit, the word there, 
is, uh, is vainglory or empty glory. Do nothing to kind of display glory when it's actually empty. But in humility, the word humility there could be translated lowliness. Lowliness. It's talking about a low estate. The way that Mary prayed when she received the news that she was going to bear Jesus, she said, Blessed is the Lord, you've come to your servant who's in humble estate. You've come to me even though I'm lowly. Jesus himself is our model. Like he's our model of obedience, he is also our model of lowliness. Christ is called gentle and same word, lowly in Matthew eleven twenty nine, He actually says, this is what my heart is. My heart is to be gentle and lowly. Though he isn't naturally, naturally lowly, he comes from high estate, the highest estate. He is the Son of God, God himself, but he became lowly. He descended. He was counted amongst the sinners. And he died. Now, I think it's interesting that Philippians doesn't necessarily call us to lay down our physical lives for Jesus' sake. We are possibly called to be martyred. Certainly, there are biblical examples of people being martyred, giving up their life for the, for the name of Christ, historical examples that we can look at. It may happen. It has happened. And I believe that we should give our lives if we are called to renounce Christ. We shouldn't. But what Philippians, Paul is saying in Philippians is interesting. He's not saying so much to actually lay down your life, but to have a mindset of sacrifice. You can imagine him writing it differently. Like, because Christ died, you need to spread his glory and go to these places and give up your life. You be killed like Christ was killed. But he actually says, what I want you to do is to look at Christ and have his mindset of sacrifice. How do we do that? Well, he says you need to offer up two things. Your significance and your interests. That's what the Christian cruciform life is really about when it comes to sacrifice. How can I lay down my significance and lay down my interests? In humility, in lowliness, verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. Doesn't mean they are more significant doesn't mean that it can't be true that you are the best, wisest, most equipped, strongest person in the room, but your mindset is that your significance is found elsewhere, not in any strength or wisdom or power. Let each of you look, verse 4, not only to his own interests. He assumes there that we'll look after our own interests. Like Paul does in Ephesians 5, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh. Everybody nurses and takes care of themselves, but he says you should also lay down your life. Here's the same thing. Not only look to your own interests, but also the interest of others. 
This is what it means to have a mindset of sacrifice. This is something for all of us to sit with. How do I guard my own significance and my own interests? And how might the cross of Christ to live in a cruciform way to shape my life after the cross, might I find ways to lay down that significance, to lay down those interests for the sake of others. I hear people say this sometimes, mostly husbands uh, say about their wives, I would die for my wife. I would take a bullet for my wife. I would die in her place. And there's some maybe some bravado mixed in with a little bit of Ephesians 5, which is good. The Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and, and gave himself up for her. So in a similar way as Christ sacrificed himself, so sacrifice yourself. And that is good. As long as you know that sacrifice means more than potential death, physical death. Because the Bible teaches that sacrifice is a mindset. So ask instead, are you willing not just to take a bullet, but are you willing to lay down your interest, to lay down your significance, to count her as more significant than yourselves? I just hear that a lot from from husbands. I wanted to say that. But this is for all of us. Are we of the mindset to give up our significance, and our interest. It's something to watch. Because Christ died so that we could have that mindset. When you give up your interests and your significance, it feels like death. Because it is. It is a death to self and a life to God. You are being Christ-like. The third thing that we can watch, not just an increasing obedience and a mindset of sacrifice, but thirdly and finally, an endurance in suffering. If you go with me to 1 Peter, that middle passage, he says in verse 21, for this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So again, Jesus is the model. He was obedient to the Father. He was sacrificial. And finally, he was an example of suffering. This passage in First Peter is really based on Psalm 34. There's a lot of references to Psalm 34 in First Peter, particularly this verse here from Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is what Peter has in the backdrop as he writes this book, First Peter, about suffering. And he says, look, Afflictions are a reality. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers. Those are both true. And so he talks about suffering. There's really three different ways that we suffer. 
We can suffer because of our own sin. There's a kind of suffering that comes rightly to those who walk away from God's good purposes and design. Secondly, there's a suffering from being in a sinful world. That is what I was talking about at our confession of sin. All the the hard things that have happened this week, suffering, not because of someone's specific sin, but because we live in a broken world. Not mutually exclusive to that. Of course, specific sin can be involved. And thirdly, suffering for bearing the name of Christ. Those are the three types of suffering talked about in 1 Peter and in the Bible broadly. And really, we're talking about the last two here, the, the suffering of being in a broken world and the suffering for the name of Christ when, when He calls Christ as the example of suffering because Jesus is the model of suffering unjustly. Think about how quick we are to correct others when they get one small thing wrong or not quite nuanced enough about us. We say, oh no, that's not me, or I didn't say it just like that, I said this and this. And we we want to nuance and we want to get very specific so that we can be understood what Jesus was wronged and not in any kind of nuanced way, but straight up accused falsely and killed wrongly, even though it was the plan of God. And it wasn't a mild disagreement that they said, well, we prefer not Jesus' way. We're talking about being spit on. We're talking about being reviled. We're talking about being mocked. We're talking about being cursed. We're talking about being stabbed and beaten and hung and death by asphyxiation. And what did Jesus do in response? Well, there's an old gospel song that says, he never said a mumbling word. Not a word, not a word, not a word. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, Jesus did not speak in his defense. And Peter says, in some sense, this is a model for us. To this you have been called. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. How do we suffer faithfully? Let's say this, what, it's, what it doesn't mean first. We're not asking that you paste a smile on your face when things are hard. Not saying that we can't cry, that we can't lament, that we can't feel the depth of the wrong things. That would be totally against Scripture. Both of those crying and lamenting as we've already talked about, are encouraged in Scripture. It doesn't mean when you suffer that you can't ask questions, even pointed questions to the Lord as we see examples in the Psalms of the psalmist crying out to the Lord and asking, why are you doing this to me? It also doesn't mean that we can't seek justice, legal or otherwise, for wrong that is done as we have many examples, biblical examples of that. We are not called to be wronged in every way like Jesus was wronged, in other words. But we are called to to see Him as an example for suffering. So what is the example that we're supposed to follow? I think the clearest and most beautiful answer is in verse 23, 1 Peter. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do instead? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in other words, in the midst of completely unspeakable injustice and suffering, was able to see through the grief and the suffering and see on the other end a righteous and trustworthy God. He entrusted Himself to the judge who judges justly. He saw past the suffering to a God who was in control. And this is what we are called to do. At the end of the day, suffering will either lead you to walk away from God or it will lead you to trust in Him more completely. Jesus is our example. In the face of most extreme suffering, He did not trust God less. He entrusted Himself more. If you want to live a cruciform, cross-shaped life, When suffering inevitably comes because this is what life is, it's suffering. Ask yourself, will that suffering lead me to entrust myself to God? Even if while I'm asking questions, even while I'm crying, even while I don't understand, do I find an increase of trust or less? The cross is an event. It's more than an event, not less than, but it is more than. It is a way of life. It is a life marked by increasing obedience, by a mindset of suffering, and by an endurance in suffering. I'll remind us of the gospel as we close again just one more time because Jesus, he is both exceptional and exemplary. What I mean by that is this. You cannot do what Jesus did. He is exceptional. There is no one like Christ. There is no obedience like His obedience. There is no sacrifice like His sacrifice. There is no suffering like His suffering. There is no way that we can be Christ. That's not what we're invited to be. It's not that we're supposed to see Christ, and then work our way in the same path that He did. He was exceptional. His death was an event on your behalf that clears your debt, that makes you right with God, that heals the world. Our suffering and our obedience and our sacrifice cannot do those things. Christ is exceptional, but He is also exemplary. He is an example That's what Peter says, leaving us, leaving you an example. The word example there, the word we might translate pattern, it's used in other New Testament time text. You know what it's primarily used as? A stencil. Remember stencils? (laughs) That's kind of the Greek idea here, a form or a pattern that you can use to, to mark something else, to paint something else, or to write something else. A stencil, what you put on the page and then you trace around. That's the idea here. Because Greece, or the Greek thought, 
is no different than today. This is how you learn to draw or to write, is using patterns, using examples. You give kids a stencil or a pattern to form their letters. And when they do that, when they, when they write those letters over those lines or follow that stencil, they are actually not writing the letters. They are writing over something that was already done for them. But it's still teaching them how to write. Do you see here? We don't write the letters. Christ has done the work. His sacrifice, His mindset, His obedience, these are things that we cannot rise to and shouldn't try. But we still trace our lives over them. We still walk more and more into that image because this is what the cross does. It gives us a pattern. It's not just an idea. It's an event, but it is an idea. More than that, it's a way of life. And we're invited here to ask ourselves, how are we living into this cruciform shape? Let's pray.